0: Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22, if you would, or your PDA, if you're that hip, your electronic device, or your brain, if you have it memorized, <laughs> wherever you want to go. Um, let, let me pray for us, and then we'll read chapter 22, a portion, and I'll share with you um, my teaching for today. Heavenly Father, we bless you tremendously for your word and for the words that give us life and for these stories. And so, God, uh, as we enter into this time, May our hearts and our minds and our souls be submitted unto you. The teaching and the direction and the content and the stories that you have to teach to us. And may we be enlightened once again by the brilliance and the mystery and the majesty of these stories. May our hearts and our lives truly be connected to what has happened thousands of years ago. And may our lives be transformed by those lessons today and into the future and pray in your name. Amen. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read the first portion here, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to, his father, uh, said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it And there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh, for those of you who are familiar with that phrase. Uh, Yahweh, yireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. We'll end our reading there. I'd like to share with you a message I've entitled, Bound and Determined. This is what's known in popular circles as the sacrifice of Isaac. However, if you read the story carefully, does Isaac get sacrificed? The answer, no. So it's actually not called, at least in Jewish circles, the sacrifice of Isaac. It's called the binding of Isaac. In Hebrew, it's the word akedah. It means the binding. It's like an animal wrapping rope around legs for a sacrifice. And so it's appropriate to call this talk Bound and Determined, because it has all those resonances there. Now, what's going on here? This is probably, if we're honest, one of the most difficult and challenging passages in the Old Testament. There's a whole bunch of them, um, but this is one of them. It ranks right up there. What in the world is God doing telling Abraham to take his son, his only son, the one whom he loves, the child of the promise, and essentially tell him... Make a sacrifice out of your son. Slaughter your son. And if you're a skeptic or wherever you are on this journey, you hear about these kinds of stories, you're like, see, that's the reason why I don't want to have anything to do with this book because it seems so archaic. It seems so brutal. It, seems, it has all of those kinds of resonances there. Now, I, I don't want to just completely ignore the subject, but we do, I do want to move on to what is the story trying to tell us? Because as we have talked about before, these things, these events that happen have a lot of depth to them. For those of you who heard the couple messages ago, we talked about how Genesis is not just lines, story after story after story, but layers. There's things that go underneath this. There's depth to these stories. It's deeply connected to other kinds of things, other kinds of meanings, other kinds of terms. And so There's definitely some good discussion and I welcome it as we do here at spark questions about what does it mean that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice this? I mean, this is just no way would I do that. And then especially in modern ears, if we were to think about this story in contemporary times, sometimes it's this, maybe God is going to ask me to do something like that. And I would never have the faith or the strength or whatever to do that kind of a deal. If we just set that aside for later discussion for a moment. What I'd like for us to do is to ask the question, where does this story come in the line of the grand flow of the entire book of Genesis? Because remember, we started in Genesis 1, and then we went to Genesis 2, and then we went to Genesis 3, and on and on and on, and we started to paint this whole big picture of what God is trying to do in this world as a redemptive story, starting with creation all the way up until this time. Now, if you recall... Not everything works out so great. We have this thing called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or this thing called the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, as I called it. And this thing, this tree of the knowledge of good and bad seemed to be a stumbling block. And, you know, we like to look at Genesis chapter 3 as kind of like, oh, that Eve, you know, if I wouldn't have this issue if it were darn Eve kind of a deal, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. And then immediately after that, we have the story of Cain and Abel. And now, you know, brothers can't even get along. So there's murder going on. And, you know, family squabbles to the nth degree. So we have this story of Cain and Abel. They can't get along. And then we have the story of Noah and the Ark. And while it's very nice and pretty, and every time you search Noah and the Ark, you know, there's these animals are apparently very happy to be floating on, you know, a zoo, a wooden zoo, on, you know, very tumultuous waters. But the reality is... This story comes with a lot of pain and suffering. The world was full of violence, Genesis says. And that's why... God calls Noah, and then even after that happens, even after Noah as a righteous man, you know, saves the entire planet, saves the entire universe, you know, he plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and then has some sort of weird interaction with his sons that we don't want to talk about in Sunday school kind of a deal. So that's kind of a problem. Then later on in Genesis chapter 11, God is trying to once again restore all these people, but then they say, hey, I got an idea. I want to build a tower. We want to build a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves, And it's like, God is like, face palm again, chapter 11. We can't seem to get this going. So, the flow of Genesis is actually not a very pretty story. Now, there's wonderfully beautifully redemptive moves that God does in all of these stories, but it's not an extremely pretty picture. It's not a perfect picture by all means. It's a very complicated, mixed-up picture. Now add to that the call of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of Haran and says, I am going to bless you and bless all the nations through you, and it's going to be this beautiful promise. Yes, I'm going to do it. Finally, all of this beautiful redemption and creation that I want to see happen on this planet, it's going to come through you, Abraham. But then what does he do? He Lies to the Pharaoh about his wife slash sister, but she really is my sister. But she's my wo- But she's my sister. So, and then he kind of gets in trouble with all of that kind of deal. And not only does he lie about his wife slash sister, he does it twice. And Abraham, even though he's supposed to be this upright person, doesn't always get things exactly right. And then you have this whole story of you know he's going to come and say hey. We're going to have a, you're going to have a child and that child is going to be the child of the promise. And Abraham goes, you know, listens to his wife, Sarah, who laughs about the whole kind of a deal. You know, hi hey God, that was a good one. <laughs> but, and then Abraham finally decides, you know, listen to my wife. And so he goes and sleeps with Hagar. We have this whole Ishmael story and then they get kicked out. You know, there's this drama in the family. And Abraham, as the person who's supposed to be the protector of the family, doesn't protect the family the way he's supposed to protect And so if you take a look at this story in this narrative, there's some complications. It doesn't work out the way it's supposed to work out. And this guy, Abraham, who has now been named the father of many, is going to take on this line of blessing the entire world. He himself is even a complicated figure. And we will see as we continue on through this Genesis story, it doesn't end There, In fact, all the way through Revelation, I would argue, is this constant flux of like, hey, Greg, oh, fail, you know, oh, you're a righteous man, oh, bummer. You know, it's this constant flux of complicated nature. And so the question is, what's really going on in this story? How does this history help us understand why the binding of Isaac? Why would God now ask Abraham to take his son, his only son, the one he loves, the child of the promise and sacrifice. And I think it's important to understand that at the very beginning of this story, the very beginning of this segment of the scriptures, there's this key phrase, after these things. Now, whenever you see this in your Bible, after these things, uh, you might have heard it in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Whenever you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask, what is that therefore? Therefore. Therefore, exactly. It's there for a reason. Well, the Old Testament has a kind of a catchphrase in the same way, and that phrase is, after these things. What things? Well, all of these things that have happened previously. This story is deeply connected to all of those other stories, and so, what happens in this Genesis chapter 2 story, you kind of have to understand the drama and the mystery and the movement that God has been making all throughout the previous parts of the book. Because that history is going to inform how you read this story. Uh, my sister in law likes to talk about sunburns. Yeah, oh. <laughs> but she likes to describe it this way. If you went up to somebody and patted them on the back and said, hey, how's it going? In a normal situation, this is fine behavior. But if you had a sunburn on your back, what does that mean to you? If somebody came up and said, hey, how's it going right on the back? It means something very different because of that history. Because you spent way too much time out in the sun and you didn't put on enough SPF. That's what it means. And just like that, This Abraham and Isaac story is deeply connected to all of these other things. What happens here is deeply connected to what happened then. And what God is trying to do is illustrate a new lesson and a new story, a new layer of what his redemptive purpose is in this world through the binding of Isaac. Ellen Davis puts it this way. God having been badly and repeatedly burned by human sin throughout the first chapters of Genesis, yet still passionately desirous of working blessing in the world, now chooses to become totally vulnerable on the point of this one man's faithfulness. Basically, what she's saying there is, God is sighing. Okay, been burned before. This whole thing between me and humanity, this beautiful thing that I've created, has not been the best that it should be. But yet I, God, deeply desire to continue to work these blessings in this world. So i got to figure out how to make sure this really happens. Now, I know this is a very different view of God. It makes him a little bit more emotional, connected, much more relational, and that's exactly the point that this God that is wrestling with you and I, this God that is wrestling with Abraham, is much more deeply entwined relationally with us than sometimes our modern theologies like to construct. Now, one of the things that's really neat about this story, that helps us see, again, part of the context, is the story starts off by saying that God is going to issue Abraham a test. Now, that word is complicated, and we talked about this several months ago, that a test can be seen in two different ways. A test can be seen in the most common way in our vernacular and the way that we think about it is, we're going to test you to see if you really did your work. The burden of the test is on you, the subject. Did you or are you going to measure up to the standard that I have now placed upon you? That's one way of thinking about a test. And all of you who are in school and, you know, working for finals, you know, you know the stress and the burden and the pressure of a test. However, there's a different way of looking at a test. The other way of looking at a test is to take a car out for a test drive. And the whole point of a test, the whole point of this test, is not to see if the car has done all of its homework. The whole point of this test is to show off the manufacturer's work. And this is what's so brilliant about the beginning of this story with the test. You could look at it as a way of testing to see, is this really Abraham? Or you could look at it as this way. This is God setting up a test to show off the work of the manufacturer, to show off the work of the creator, to show off to both Abraham and to God, watch what my creation can do. And this is a brilliant way of thinking about the tests and the trials that are in your life. And again, we talked about this several months ago. When you're going through a test and going through a trial, sometimes the feeling of that is so much like God is trying to oppress you. Or God is just really, it's kind of this uh, testing thing of like, okay, are you really going to follow through? Or it can be seen as, you know, no, God is wanting to illuminate within you that he has put something in you. There's something there that is beautiful. And so those are the two ways of thinking about a test. And I'm going to suggest to you that the second way, thinking about a test drive, is probably what is happening here. Now, here we go. Genesis chapter 22. Let's get into the story and see then what lessons, what test, what is being illuminated in this person, Abraham. Notice this phrase. Take, please, your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. Now, this is a funny phrase in and of itself. I don't know if you recall, but God came to Abraham earlier and said, I'm going to give you a son. And then that was kind of it. And so Abraham and Sarah are trying to figure this all out. And he decides through this whole kind of uh, conspiracy with Sarah. Oh, why don't you go sleep with her? And then that will have a son. And that's how it's going to work out. And God's like, you know, face palm again. Oh, that's not exactly what I meant. So when God comes to Abraham a second time, he's like, take your son. <laughs> oh, <wait a> second. <laughs> your only son. You really want to make sure that you really get this right. Okay, let me be clear. The one you love, just in case we're clear. And then he kind of walks away, and then he, God goes back to him. Okay, Isaac, Isaac's the one. Make sure it's Isaac. And so there's all, the, such a, uh, all sorts of beautiful commentary on why this fourfold affirmation of what to do. Because previously, when God just gave a command, it got all jumbled up in the head. Take your son. Okay. Wait, 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 your only son. The one you love, you know. Okay. And just in case there's any confusion, Isaac, make sure it's Isaac. Now, what's missing in this story, excuse me, what's missing in your English translation is this word, please. Almost every translation I've looked at does not include this word, please. I don't know why. It, it, it actually kind of baffles me. But in the Hebrew, there's this word, please. Now, when you see the word, please, this shifts the entire story from a command to an entreaty. This is not a divine command to Abraham. This is take, please. I'm asking you. This is a request. And then he says, your only son. The only one. As if he doesn't have two sons. But your only one. What is he saying there? Because previously he was going to have a son. And then he says, And go. This phrase, and go, in Genesis 22, is the exact same phrase from Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham and says, and go. The Hebrew, lech, lecha, go. So what's going on here in this story? This is not some isolated event. I would suggest to you this, that what is happening in the binding of Isaac, through those little clues, is that this is deeply connected to God's call and his covenant with Abraham. I want you to be reminded, this son of yours is not just your son, as in your progeny, as in your child. This is the son of the covenant. This is the son of the promise. This is the son that encapsulates everything about why I have called you and covenanted with you, Abraham. Do not forget this, that you are going to be a father of many, that I'm going to make your name great, that you're going to have great repute. That you're going to have a land, which means you're going to have a home, and that the entire earth is going to be blessed through you. That sun, the sun that symbolizes, encompasses all of that, that's the sun I want you to take. And by the way, when you take that sun, I want you to keep in mind all of these things that I've set before you. All the way back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. It's all deeply connected. The thing that Abraham had so hoped and so desired and so felt deeply in his soul and his spirit, that this was God's promise to me and to us and to the world, that son. Are you with me? This isn't just a child. This is a symbol of everything that God has set before And not only is this deep connection between God and Abraham, but Isaac says to Abraham, Father, but literally it's my Father, and has this connection of, I'm with you on this. Whatever is happening, I want to be connected with you as well. As they make their way, Isaac asks the brilliant question Hey, uh, I see wood, I see fire. See, there's something missing here. What is missing? We're going up for a sacrifice, and there's one other. Darn it, what is that thing? What is that ingredient that we need for a sacrifice? And God, excuse me, Abraham says to Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Showing once again Abraham's great faith. Now, one of the things that you don't see in this phrase, again, is this. Why is there a comma there? Every English translation I've ever seen has a comma. (laughs) There are no commas in Hebrew. So read this again, which might give a little bit of a clue into what Abraham might be thinking. God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering My son. Could he be possibly alluding to the fact that Abraham is thinking that my son will be the burnt offering? There's that beautiful play on words, the way the words are constructed there. And Abraham himself might be thinking, my son is going to be the burnt offering. And he doesn't want to give it away to Isaac, but he states it there almost clearly. And this is what's so beautiful. And the two of them walked on together. And that phrase together could really indicate that Isaac, maybe in some understanding, recognizes what is happening or what is about to happen. And Isaac himself, in full faith and in full trust, goes together with his father Abraham. They walked off together. And so through this story, through this divine entreaty, through this request that God gives, we're starting to see a little bit more of the character of both Abraham and Isaac. You know the story. Binds up the wood, binds up Isaac. The akedah bounds him with ropes and then is interrupted, this divine interruption. Abraham, Abraham, don't do this thing. And then what's fascinating Abraham says this, here am I. I mean, the angel is just interrupted. Abraham about to put his hand down on his son. And the angel says, Abraham, Abraham. And I would have thought Abraham would have said, whew, thank God. But he goes, here am I. Which is the exact same phraseology that Abraham said to God right back at the very beginning in verse 2. It's the same word that he used to speak to Isaac. Abraham is just simply saying, okay, wherever this story is taking me, here I am. Okay, God, I'm right here. Okay, son, I'm right here. Just simply following. And so this phraseology, I think, is illustrating something about Abraham's character. It speaks to Abraham's faithfulness, his presence, his attentiveness, and his receptivity. And what I mean by that is simply this. There is something deep going on in Abraham's soul. That even though this is one of the most appalling things that we could ever think about, Abraham somehow trusts fully and completely this God who has called him or asked him to do this thing. Fully trusts. And this is what makes Abraham the father of our faith. It's not blind obedience. Which is how this is sometimes often. This is about a relational Covenantal, your God, I've been called by you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to place my trust in you. Because after this, after all of that happens, what does God repeat? I will bestow my blessing upon you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens and on the sands of the seashore. All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your descendants because you have obeyed my command. And it's after Abraham acquiesces, after Abraham says, okay, God, here, here I am. I'm taking the son, the son of the promise. I'm going to go forward with this. <clears throat> and that God comes through and says, okay, now I see, I see what you are made of. I see that you have obeyed. I see that you have followed through. I see that you trust me. And now that I see that you trust me, let's move forward with the very same command and call that I've given you from the very beginning. This entire story is all about faithfulness. It is not a story about blind obedience. It is not a story about how Abraham just simply loses his brain and whatever God says, that's what I do. No, this is a story about faithfulness, which is a story about trust. It's a story about how Abraham, in this entreaty, in this request, is going to say, Okay, I trust you. Whatever is going to happen, wherever this is going to take me, I trust you. This is a story about an Abraham who is trusting, and that's that word faithful, to God. But it's also a story about how God is now faithful to Abraham. He is trusting Abraham to follow through with this whole lineage. Remember, it's been a very complicated story up to this time. And now God sees, okay, Abraham, you've learned some lessons. And now after this most ultimate of lessons, I think I can trust you now. So Abraham extends trust to God, and God extends trust to Abraham. So it's a story about Abraham who is faithful to God. And it's also a story about an Abraham who is himself trustworthy, and a God who is himself trustworthy. This is what this story is about, which means reliable, Dependable upright virtuous and this is the core essence of what it means to be faithful This entire episode is about trust trust worthiness And here's the key point the reciprocation of trust between two parties who are bound together in a covenant This story doesn't make any sense if you're not in relationship with god This is a really key point where, where we take a look at all these stories if you're not in relationship with god Obviously this looks really weird This is not that This is a story about an Abraham who is in deep relationship with God. And in this relationship, through the complicated history, both God and Abraham are now extending trust to each other. How are we going to strengthen the bond of trust between us? Are you with me? Does this make sense? Now, I get all geeked up about this. Why? Because I like to read people like Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett said things like this trust is like the air we breathe. When it's present, nobody really notices, but when it's absent, everybody notices. See, trust or trustworthiness, this bond and connection that you have with somebody else is actually a deeply human element. It speaks to the very core soul of what it means to be in relationships with each other. Now we're we're preaching. So this this guy by the name of Dove Seidman wrote this book, How, which I highly recommend to everybody. It's it's a long book, but let me just give you one of the quotes here that I think are extremely applicable to this message. When you trust somebody, their brain responds by making more oxytocin, which allows them to trust you in return. Reciprocity, doing unto others as they do unto you, seems therefore to be a biological function. Trust begets. Trust. This is brilliant. And you're, as you are in relationship with another person, when you extend trust to another person, when you say, I'm going to trust that you can follow through, I'm going to trust you with my heart. I'm going to trust you with this assignment. I'm going to trust you with this deep part of who I am. I'm going to extend to you a trust of this thing that belongs to me. Or if you're an organization, I'm going to trust that you're actually going to be able to go through, finish, complete whatever assignment that our organization needs to have happen. It does something in the person to whom that trust is extended. And in return, I now want to trust you back. This is something that can radically transform. I mean, people have written about this, about how this can radically transform relationships, businesses, organizations, leadership. When you extend trust to somebody else, that trust is ultimately returned. And that reciprocity of trust bonds you closer and closer together. So, when I say bound and determined, what I mean is this. Dictionary.com, a great resource. (laughs) Firmly resolved to, as in, he was bound and determined to finish the assignment before taking on another. This phrase is a redundancy used for emphasis. Bound and determined here to mean resolved to. It's something that I am deeply committed to. I would like to change it like this and to say that Abraham himself, by symbolically binding Isaac, was bound and determined to trust God fully and completely in any and every situation and circumstance, even at the request of the sacrifice of his son. And as Abraham extended to God his trust, okay, God, I trust you. God was bound and determined, therefore, to reciprocate that trust with Abraham and Isaac fully and completely And what happens in this story is that the two parties are bonded closer and deeper together. This is brilliant. Now, I want to share with you a story about my good friend named Ben Davis, who's sitting right over here. Ben Davis is a guy uh, that I hired to work with me at King's Academy uh, just a couple months ago. This story came to mind as I was thinking about this. Uh, Yeah, see and there's Holly. I'm with him. I'm with her. They're very cute. After service, go over and just stare at them because they're very cute. When we started this process, there were some complicated things that were involved. Don't worry. I asked them permission to share this story. Kind of a deal. When we started this process, there were some complicated things that were involved. Holly already worked in our department and she's been there uh, for a long time, Uh, a phenomenal youth worker, but she met this guy named Ben. At the same time, we were hiring somebody because we needed an additional person to come work in our department. Well, there's some complications with that, right? Here's a guy who's a phenomenal youth worker, works in the East Bay. And the more and more I'm hearing stories about this guy, the more and more I think, I like him. I need him to work with me. I want him here. And so we start talks and conversations we start thinking about how is this going to work and i i start having conversations with holly about what's appropriate how this is going to work because if they're dating and they end up getting married kind of a deal this you know it can be a complicated thing but i'm feeling very confident in where we're going through this process it was told to us later through some uh, a variety of means that this was not going to happen that this kind of arrangement was simply never going to work out. In other words, we were binding it and we were putting it on the sacrificial altar and saying, this is not going to work. Now, here's a guy who would love to come and work. I mean, we are formulating a great relationship. Things are looking great. Uh, Every characteristic that I'm seeing, this is going to be a fantastic thing. I'm thinking, here is the child of promise. This is going to be great. This is going to be the most phenomenal thing and then all of a sudden slammed. And, and they thought this would be great. Holly had had this dream for years that she would love to work side by side with her husband. And so all of these things are starting to look in the same direction. All of a sudden, no, done. Sorry, not going to happen. And the reason why I tell you st- this story is because of their reaction. And here's what this is just was so beautiful. Through this time of Conversing and trying to figure out how are we going to manage the emotional ups and downs of these decisions. I heard from both of them individually, separately as well as together. You know what? This isn't our decision. This belongs to God. And even though it's painful, even though it's like, oh, this is this could be so wonderful. It was in that moment where they both of them said, "I am essentially." bound and determined to trust that God is in this and that no matter where we go, no matter what this ends up in, if I have to go work somewhere else or whatever kind of deal, we trust that God is in control. We trust that God is there. We trust that God is moving and it's going to be okay. And that, to me, is one example of probably a thousand other stories that people could tell about how in times where you feel like you have to take the thing that is most precious to you, the thing that you thought is going to work out exactly the way it is going to be, the thing that you thought was going to be the child of promise, and you have to sacrifice that on the altar and say, Ah, you're going to have to give that up. Or you're going to have to say, even this belongs to God. This isn't mine. It's in that moment where you say, Do you really trust fully and completely this God that has called you and covenanted with you and made you his child? Because even in that moment right there, okay, God, I'm going to even trust you in this. It's chaos. It's sacrifice. It's not working out the way I want it to. But even in this, I'm going to trust you. And as that trust is extended, as their story continued to unfold, as they began to trust, okay, it is in God's hands, that's when God says, okay, I can use you now. I see in you your ability to give it up and to trust me fully and completely. And so I got to perform their wedding. So that's how that. And I tell that story again because apparently this picture was on Facebook for a while that some of you commented on. And uh, it was a little embarrassing, so <clears throat> that, was the, that was the post uh, winning. And what ended up happening is, as you know, we got to hire him, and it's been a phenomenal thing. Both Ben and Holly are, are just phenomenal youth workers and have, ca- I cannot tell you how much value they have added to our department and to the school as a result. But what I appreciated so much about that story is in the moment where you feel like you've got to sacrifice it all, both of them individually said, okay, we're going to trust God in this. And that, I think, is what's going on in this Abraham and Isaac story. It's this bond of trust. And as they trusted God more, the strength and the relationship that they have with this God only increased. And it's a beautiful thing. Dave um, is going to come up, and we're going to sing, Great is thy faithfulness as a response. And as they do, I want to share with you one cherry on top. (laughs) This phraseology, Take, please, your son, your only one, whom you love. There's a concept in... Biblical interpretation called first occurrence. And this is the first occurrence of the word love in the Bible. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And I think it is deeply connected to this idea of covenant, call, and trustworthiness. Bringing together these two parties. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And if you read the Gospel of John carefully, the first occurrence of that word love shows up in this passage. For God so loved... And look at these resonances that he gave his one and only, just like Isaac, that whoever trusts in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It is my prayer that throughout the entire story, I feel like God, starting with this story and others, God is extending to us this trustworthiness. And he, God himself, is bound and determined to strengthen the bonds of this covenant and call through extending to all of us tests that illuminate what is already within us and the manufacturer's fashioning of us that we can actually ultimately trust him. And in that trust, God is reciprocating that trust back to us. And we are drawn closer and closer and closer. Even if he asks of you to sacrifice, to bind up the thing that is most precious to you. Lord, I thank you for today and for these amazing stories. Help us, Lord, to see and to be transformed once again by the lessons you would have to teach us. I thank you for everybody here at Spark and for their presence. They, <coughs> they are such a blessing to us. And God, I pray that your word blesses them, transforms their lives. And may your kingdom continually be spread here on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen. Let's sing together.